You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. If you guys don't know me, my name's Alan. I'm one of the staff here in Illini Life, um, and um, I miss my friend David, too. Uh, thinking about, we, we shared uh, some time together in a house uh, in a line of life um, history called the Dog House. Um, I think where you choose to live is a massive choice in your college years, and choosing to live either on mission, like very clearly, like in the dorms, or in a like intentional Christian community, those are like my two like top choices. Um, I'm not going to judge you if you do something else, but I'm going to like say you made a really great choice if you choose one of those two. So... Um, so he and I lived together. We shared a lot of things. We shared some di- some a lot of sports together. Um, we did not share an affinity for the same football team. Um, David was uh, a fantastic musician, like Nick had said. I like to listen to music. Um, and I was thinking about this song actually this week. I listened to it on repeat over and over again. It's it's by a band that um, uh, white Christian guys of my age listen to called Switchfoot. Um, and uh, they're uh, they're really like a Christian, but they don't necessarily sound Christian all the time. Like rock band from San Diego, California, um, and their lead singer John Foreman is like the, my favorite songwriter of all time. Like I think he make, writes amazingly true things because he he feels the tension between joy and grief. That he's willing to talk about um, the hope of the kingdom to come and the sadness of the life we live, and yet also the excitement of life. It's all these things that like. Uh, uh, my heart loves. So um, there's this song by them called Where I Belong. Um, by uh, uh, It's on the end of, I can't remember one of the albums, but it's on the end of, um, you can make fun of me later if you're a big switchfoot head or whatever. Um, it, it reminded me of David. It also reminded me of, of the passages we're doing um, these few weeks as a church. And it says, until I die, I'll sing these songs. You can put that up there. On the shores of Babylon, still looking for a home in a world where I belong. Where the weak are finally strong, where the righteous right the wrongs, still looking for a home in a world where I belong. And so John, the, the foreman, the lead singer of this, he's, he's singing about, the, it's two things, because music often does this. It's singing about um, the real history of Israel, God's people stuck on the shores of Babylon in exile from their home. And he's singing about us in a world where we feel like we don't quite fit. There's something quite not quite right um, in a broken world. And so we search for those things um, where the righteous right the wrongs, where the weak are finally strong. And so while we live in some of this reality of a world that's already but not yet, the Israelites lived in a world um, in this period of time where we're looking at in the, the book of Ezra, but just before they lived in a world where they were stuck away from their home. Um, they had been conquered by a nation called Babylon. They'd been removed from their home. Before I get that, can I show you this timeline that we've been using um, for the Bible, uh, for the Old Testament? Um, this is a, a thing that Nick has put together um, uh, for a seminary and beyond. And so I want to point you guys, this before Easter, we were looking at the book of Isaiah right there in the little blue square there. Um, we're talking about the divided monarchy. See, God's people, they had their own land, and just shortly after getting their own land, they decided they wanted their own kings, and then things really started to mess up because they no longer had their own king. They had their own kings, and they couldn't get along, and they became two different nations. Um, do you have a map of that? Can you pull it up? Great. Okay, so you have Judah in the brown here, and then you have Israel in the green here. They were all one kingdom together, but then Assyria, Assyria, Syria up here up to the northeast actually came and conquered Israel. 
Um, Israel was deeply disobedient to God. Um, God said, I'm going to discipline you for your disobedience, for your lack of faithfulness to me. And Israel was more unfaithful, and so they were uh, conquered. Um, I'm trying to remember where I'm at in the slides, so can you do the next one here? Great, okay. So Judah as alone is, is a, a nation here. Jeremiah was a prophet during that time. In, in case you're wondering these names, I just want to put this together for you. Jeremiah said that another nation will come and destroy Judah, the southern kingdom that still existed. And it's okay if you're not tracking with it all this time. We'll, we'll, you'll get it like over the course of the next decade of your life. You're like, oh, that all makes sense now. Um, uh, Judah was going to be taken over. They were going to be taken over very specifically by a leader named Cyrus. Um, Jeremiah prophesied this. And not only that, or by Babylon, excuse me, and then Cyrus later will actually free them. So we're talking about Jeremiah writing, very specifically naming a person prophetically that will come and actually end the Babylonian exile. I'll talk about this for a second. I'm, I'm sort of messed up on my time here. I'm not following my notes because I want to follow the slides more. Um, so Babylonian exile is next right here. Jeremiah predicted this, that the nation of Babylon, can we go to that picture there, is going to take over Judah. This is a map of the modern Middle Eastern world. You can see things like Israel's down here, Egypt's over there, Syria. You can see Turkey, which changed its uh, way we say its name to Turkey or something like that. Um, you can see that Ukraine is up there in the far northern reaches of this particular map. This is real space, real time, real places that we know today. And this is what they look like today. Can you do that overlay? Okay, this is little old Israel and Judah right here. You can see like the little brown in the bottom half, that's, that's Judah. The top half is Israel. Let's go to the next section. Judah and Israel are both taken over by the Babylonian Empire, King Nebuchadnezzar. If you're really famous, people try to draw pictures of you and take a guess as to what you look like. Um... Babylon, this Babylonian empire, was this massive uh, piece of land that they had taken over from the, all around this Middle Eastern area when you know like the Tigris, the Euphrates, right in there, Babylon ruled. In fact, they have this city right there, Babylon, where the red line follows along the exile of the, the Judeans um, to their exile in Babylon. Tracking? JD's tracking because he knows this stuff. The rest of you, are, I'm, I'm sorry if you're not. Um, okay. What's crazy is Jeremiah's prophecy, specific naming of a man named Cyrus, happened. Cyrus is the ruler of a kingdom called Persia, um, and he rules shortly after Nebuchadnezzar, and he decides that he's going to take over Babylon, because colonialism has kind of always been a thing, uh, in case you were wondering. Um, and it's this period of time where Ezra is written. Okay, so... Israelites gone from their homeland, 70 years. Generations gone by. The oldest people who are, the youngest people from that exile were the oldest people in the end of the exile, at least the end of their freedom to go home. We're talking about generations, history lost, moments lost, expectations lost, nothing good coming until Cyrus comes along. And this is when Ezra is written. Ezra, along with six or five other books here, um, do you have that zoom in there? Uh, happens during the return of the exile. Ezra, Nehemiah, which we're going to do next week. Esther, which we did last week. And three prophetic books, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. 
if you ever hear those names of those Bible books, you're like, wait, are they Bible books or not? They are. Uh, and they're written in this period of time, about this period of time. And in fact, uh, if you read Ezra all the way through, you'll read a couple of those names mentioned um, as prophets writing in those times. Um, so they're all contemporaries. Ezra is one of the narrative books in that time, along with Nehemiah and Esther. The other three are prophets. Um, and what happens in Ezra, and we're going to talk about it, is the returning of God's people to their land. Um, we're going to talk about the second half of that in Nehemiah next week. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah in older manuscripts are like collected together as one book. We sort of split them out because, I don't know, attention spans or something. Um, uh, and so this book covers a lot of time. It actually covers about 80 years worth of time. Um, so even longer than the exile. And we're going to get into it. Um, I'm gonna, here's what's going to happen today. I'm going to summarize this book for you. I'm going to walk you through the narrative of it, walk you through the pieces of it, and I'm going to encourage you to read it on your own later. Listen to it on an audio Bible. It's like 50 minutes to listen to. One and a half speed, we even faster, because who listens to podcasts at regular speed? Does, it, does anybody listen to podcasts at regular speed? Weirdos. Um, no, that's fine. Um, does anybody listen to it at less than one time speed? Okay, there you go, John. Thank you for your honesty. I appreciate that. Um, okay, so Ezra has four major movements in it that I'm going to cover here. And you could break it down a lot of different ways, right? But uh, chapters one through three in this 10-chapter book, chapters one through three are the exiles returning and the beginning to build. Chapters four through six, opposition and temple completion. Chapters seven through eight, the second wave and Ezra's leadership. And then nine and 10, the cleansing of God's people. I will have these up again, so you don't need to write this down all right now, but if, you, if you're a note taker, we love that. I love note takers in our church, people who are trying to engage in God's word, study what we have to say. Um, the Berean Jews were of more noble character because they tested what Paul said against the scriptures. And so test what we have to say here on Sundays. Go look at the text and say, wait, they didn't say that. Um, I, in fact, as you look at books, you look at resources for things like Ezra and Nehemiah, I've come across things where I'm like, that's not what it says, actually. Um, you probably shouldn't have made that video. Um, so anyway, so I want to give you guys some handholds to the book. I want to walk you through it. And my hope is as we look over the entire narrative of the book, there are going to be some things that you might want to take away. There's some things that the Spirit might be pressing into you, and there's things that I want to share with you that I feel like God's pressing into me. You guys ready to get into it? Yeah. All right, let's start with Act 1, Chapter 1 of Act 1. Ezra begins like this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, great, it happened. Cyrus, king of Persia. I mentioned his picture was up there. He was the one with like the gold hat on. I think it's gold, probably. It looked like it should be gold. Um, what I love about this is like that dating convention is really cool because we can look to sources outside of Israel and say, oh, we know when this happened because Cyrus was a real king. This isn't like made up like Mordor and things like that. Like there's real grounded history that we live in, in space that we live in. And so uh, in the first year of King Cyrus, we know Cyrus took over Babylon in the first year he took over Babylon, which is 538. So we can say Ezra begins in 538 BC. How cool is that? I love that these guys took like major record keeping. I often think like, man, the record keeping from our era is going to be lost if the internet's lost. Like all these paper documents and things like that, that we can track things back to. Super cool. Anyway. The book says that Cyrus, specifically to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah, which I know I took you just kind of like through a loop there to mention Jeremiah. I wanted to mention it because it's to fulfill this prophecy that Jeremiah said. He makes a proclamation. I'm going to read this to you from Ezra chapter 1. This is Cyrus. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Wow. 
Uh, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Okay, Cyrus, man, a lot of flowery, like big language. Let's explain that for a second. Um, let's look at his empire. He said he, God had given him all the world. Okay, this is the Babylonian empire. Remember that when we looked at that? Judah's right down there where it says Judah, that little small spot. Let's look at the Persian empire. You know the next slide? Okay, probably all the nations of the earth except like the Greeks and Athens over there and like Europe, like there's some land he didn't capture, but like all in all, lots of power for Cyrus. Lots of land taken over. This makes sense? Like this is like America, the superpower. Like their influence is everywhere. Um, even if our geograph geographic influence is everywhere, our cultural influence is everywhere as a nation, right? Like maybe we're, <laughs> maybe we're in Persia. Um, now Cyrus, for whatever reason, and this is where history books point this out, was probably a pretty benevolent ruler. And so Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar were like, hey, like, you're going to become one of us. We're going to take you away from your land. We're going to burn your cities, things like that. Cyrus is like probably a polytheist. And so he's like, I don't want to take off any of the gods. So you guys, you guys over there, go build your thing. You build your thing. You Jews, you go take care of your thing. I'm going to write really flowery and nice language. To be clear, Cyrus was not a Jew. He was not into the God of the Jews, but he was a polytheist who was like, I don't want to tick anybody off. This makes sense? This is probably the best guess from historical documents on the matter. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so he himself actually says, hey, you can have all these things. Go back home, rebuild your city, build your temple to your God. And he himself actually goes to grab the things that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken, and he wants to go take them and put them back. Like, there's this level of, like, urgency to it. Like, God's hand is on Cyrus to make this happen. Um, so, when Babylon came, before Cyrus, right, Babylon, Persia. Babylon is Nebuchadnezzar, Persia, Cyrus. When Babylon came, they probably would have raised the city of Jerusalem, like R-A-Z, not R-A-I. Um, raised the city, like, burned it to the ground, did as much as they could to destroy it. Um, and so... Um, the Jews that were planning to go home, some of them remembered that. But many of them, it was not a homecoming for them. It wasn't like going back to where they knew. It was actually an excursion into the unknown, right? Like it was a, hey, we are going somewhere that has been promised to our people, but we ourselves have not seen. Not unlike the Exodus uh, at the beginning of the Bible. There's an exodus to the promised land in Ezra that's important to just point to, to draw that tie. Seventy years had passed, but a bunch of people say, let's go. And chapter one of Ezra ends with an accounting of all the stuff that goes with them, the things that are returned. Chapter two is one of those lists where it's easy to skip over, is an accounting of a lot of people. Uh, about 52, or 50,000 people, 42,000 people, plus another 8,000 or so servants, and then also 6,270 donkeys. Um, there's a few other animals that are listed, but like very specific accounting. Any accountants in here? Count majors? This is, that's what's up. Yeah. Look at all those. They're, they're all reconciled. It's great. Um, now, that number sounds large. 42, 50,000 people. Um, it's the size of, like, what would fit, like, in Wrigley Field. Like, could you imagine all the donkeys on the field, like, eating the ivy off the walls, things like that? They all fit right there. 
So either that number seems like a lot to you or it doesn't, or it doesn't seem like a lot, depending on where you're at. Like, but this group of people decides we are going to go. I think uh, from, from what I can tell from studying things like that, the number was hoped to be a lot bigger, but that's what they ended up with, people who were willing to go, which means many did not make the trip. Many did not return to the Exodus. And if, if you know Jewish people today, for various reasons, even more recent reasons, they are a diaspora people. They are spread about. They keep their identity. Many times I'm thankful for that because there's something really powerful about being God's chosen people, but they're spread out geographically. And this is one of the many instances where they didn't all return to the same place. And they were given a task by Cyrus to go and restore the temple. Cyrus's motivations may have been personally motivated, but he was used by God to send God's people back to build the place, the house of worship. At this time, right, this is how worship happened. There was a grieving on the shores of Babylon because they couldn't go worship at the temple, make sacrifices at the temple. They had known since they were established the tabernacle, the temple, they had always had that. And for 70 years, not that. To go back and restore it was a powerful thing. All right, now before we go forward, I'm gonna talk to you about dates because I love this. I mentioned like we can look to other resources. We can also look to the Jewish calendar, which is helpful for you guys to see because if you, if you read this in the ESV, it's gonna give you things like in the, in the first day of the first month, which to a Jew, they would have known that, but that's not January 1st, in case you were wondering. Um, the NLT, other translations will actually change it to say on April 4th or whatever it might be, this happened. And so it's helpful for you to see the, the Jews at that time kept a lunar solar calendar, somewhere in between. So the months and the days didn't exactly line up the same time every year. And we'll see that as we go forward where they didn't necessarily line up. But in general, I'll have this up here a few times. You can see Nissan, the first month of the year, not the car company, uh, is somewhere between Mar March and April when it begins. And depending on the year, it changes, right? Because the lunar cycles don't always line up exactly um, on every like 30 days or so. This makes sense? Okay, I'll have this graphic up here for a few points so you guys can track with the times if you want to. Um, okay, let's actually give an example. We're past the accounting. In chapter three, it says in the seventh month in the ESV, or in the NLT, it says in early autumn. Seventh month, early autumn. Can we back to that calendar real quick? Seventh month, early autumn. Great. Tishri, October, September. We're going to get to the festival booths there. Um, we don't know what year it was because, or we don't know what year it was specifically because it says in the seventh month of the second year uh, of their time back. So the Israelites came back in the seventh month of the second year. So is that like in 538 or 537 or 536? We're not sure. Um, but we know that it was either September, October, if it was in 538, or October, or November, if it was 537. Hence, some of these datings and moving things like that. Now, I just want to give you that example of where it doesn't line up exactly the same every year on a lunar calendar. If you're ever on Jeopardy now, you can at least approach that topic. Okay, so it's autumn. Let's go up there. It's early autumn. The leaf peepers are out. Um, it's going to be great. They're going to see all the colors change. I'm kidding. Um, the people of God arrived in Jerusalem. After 70 years, God's people have returned with a goal to build a temple. There are people there. If you can imagine, it's not just like, an like hey, there's like some city left here. There are people there. There are people in the surrounding towns. And I imagine the situation might have been a little tense. Like, hey, we've been living here for like 70 years. What are you guys doing? 
Um, if you can imagine like an entire bas baseball stadium's worth of people coming to show up and say, hey, we're going to live here now. But the first thing they do, which I love this, is they start to celebrate. They celebrate the Festival of Booths, and they start to build an altar. The Festival of Booths is one of the, the festivals that God commanded his people to celebrate. Um, it's about living in huts um, in the Exodus, how God provided for people in the midst of living in booths, in amongst tabernacles, houses. And then they build an altar. They don't even bother to build a temple yet. They're like, we're going to build an altar. We're going to start making sacrifices because it was that important to them for whatever reason, whether it be culturally or because they deeply had been moved by the period of exile to start worshiping. They built an altar. They made sacrifices. In fact, they made the sacrifices that were required and they made free will offerings, meaning they went above and beyond. They weren't just like, hey, we follow the rules, but like, God, we love you so much. We want to give to you. We are so thankful we are here. Um, now the book skips some time and it moves us to mid-spring in the second year. I'm, I'm, I apologize, guys. I'm all over my notes. So this is mid-spring in the second year. Please read the book um, afterwards because you can test where I'm wrong. Um, those who returned are starting to be ready to build the foundation for the temple. They're led by the likes of a guy named Zerubbabel, Shealtiel, and Jeshua, which man, Zerubbabel, when's that name coming back? Um, so the temple starts to get built. Second year, sec, or second year of their return, the temple starts to get built. And the foundation is awesome. If you can imagine, the temple foundation is awesome. People are excited. People are cheering. But if you remember, there is a group of people who are older who are there who remember what it used to be like. And amongst the cheers for the foundation that is built, there's weeping for the foundation that was it's not as good. It's not as beautiful. It's not as great as it used to be. Um, those of us who've walked with Jesus for a while probably can feel at different points. It's not as good as it used to be. There's not as many people around. There's not as many people following Jesus. I sit with a group of, of men in a Bible study every Monday night who uh, are all of retirement age, and they grieve where it feels like they've seen our society go um, because it feels not as good as it used to be. And I always want to tell them, but look, look what God's doing on the college campus right now. These guys are here. They are choosing to come worship every Sunday. God is doing something. And so there's this tension of emotions as the temple foundation is being rebuilt between what was and the grief and loss of that, but also what is going on and what could be from a new seed. Okay. So let me just give you the summary. Chapter, or Act 1, Israelites return, temple foundation is starting to be built. Lots of emotions about that. Let's move on to Act 2. This is where Ezra gets to be like a Christopher Nolan movie, um, where time gets played with. Do you guys know Christopher Nolan? He's, he's, it's good. You guys should watch movies of his. Um, the movie Dunkirk um, plays with time. It actually has, it has three different storylines that all happen at different times, time like paces, but they all land in the same place. And what's happening here in Ezra is kind of that. Let me, let me show you. So Ezra goes, Ezra starts to describe an opposition um, to the temple being built. There are people there. Some might have been people who stayed from the exile, who were kept to take care of the land and things like that. Some might be people who have foreign gods. They're like, hey, let us help you build your temple to your very specific exclusive God. And the Israelites are like, no, thank you. 
And so the, those people who offered help become opposition. They become enemies, and they start to press in. And they start to write letters to the rulers of uh, Persia and say, hey, actually, these Israelites, these Judah, Judahites, they're bad people. They're not the people you think they should be. They're actually going to take over. Um, and so we have Cyrus here, but the book actually goes on to describe uh, opposition into Darius's reign, and then into Xerxes' reign, and Artaxerxes' reign. And so there's this long swath of time that Ezra 4 actually goes through um, and walking through opposition's happening in all this time frame. And then we're like pushed back uh, to the reign of Darius. Does this make sense? So what happened is Ezra is describing after the fact, because he's writing after the fact, all this opposition that started there is continuing on into our day. And then he goes on and comes back to the story. He's kind of like running an aside like that. If you're not into Christopher Nolan, it's probably like a side plot in Friends or something like that. I don't know. Um, you guys, don't watch Friends. It's bad TV. Um, <clears throat> okay. Um, okay. So it ping-pongs us back into the reign of Darius, a king who comes to reign in 522, 16 years after the return to Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm jumping around my notes here. I covered all this, sorry. Oh, I want to mention one other thing to you guys, sorry. In this section, um, you'll see those names, Haggai and Zechariah. They're actually mentioned, encouraging God's people to build. In the midst of that time. So I did want to mention that, that those prophets, those contemporary prophets are referenced here. So these books that feel like sometimes to like us, we're like, wait, did that really happen in that time frame? Were those really written that same time? They're all referencing each other. They're referencing what's going on in each other. They're written as contemporaries. That's why we can trust God's word because it's historically accurate all the way to this time still we have those good records, which is just super comforting for me. Okay. At the end of chapter six, after our flash forward, there's a letter to Darius, the king there, that says, Darius says, we can actually, you guys can continue building. So on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, or March 12th, 1516, the temple is completed. Can we pull that up? You have that, that, I know I'm all over the place, Allie. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, I wanted to, sorry guys, I wanted to show you this too. I'm just like, sorry. there's going to be reference in there of land beyond the river. I want to show you this too. Beyond the river, the Euphrates River is the river. And so when there's talk in that section, when you read that section, when you go back and look at it, it's going to say the land beyond the river. That's that land there. So it's not just the land, like you might be thinking, if this was a question your small groups, you got to it. It's not the Jordan River. It's actually the Euphrates River. So Persia is so large that the land beyond the river is this whole area where con- people are concerned the Israelites are going to, they're going to re- wreck it all. Okay. Anyway, let's go to 512, uh, or 516, you're 516. Okay, so temple building resumes 521, temple's completed in 516, in the reign of Darius. Okay, the priests and Levites start to serve, and the exiles celebrate the Passover on April 21st of that year. The first Passover in Jerusalem that's recorded, genuinely happening in the city. Um, even though the temple's small and dissatisfying to many, even though there's opposition, 
They have a place to worship and they've celebrated the Passover there. And that's the end of act two. Act one, Israelites return, start to build. Act two, opposition, future flash forward opposition, but also opposition at the time. And then the temple's completed. That's the end of act two. Act three. We have a large gap in time here, actually. And this is helpful for me to look at a timeline here where we actually, there's a long time between the temple being built and Ezra, the namesake of this book, even coming into the book. So he comes in in chapter seven, um, all the way here um, in, beyond the reign of Cyrus and Darius. Um, we're landing in the year five, or sorry, 458, if I could read. And this is actually after uh, the book of Esther. And I just want to point this out. Esther happens in this period between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Ezra. And there's a chance, there's nothing that says this, but there's a chance maybe Ezra and Nehemiah were saved by Esther's act. I'll explain to you in a bit here. So Ezra, he is actually introduced and he's given a long lineage of introduction that's traced all the way back to Aaron, the first priest. He's, there's credibility to the line that he comes from uh, to be able to teach and lead God's people as a priest. He's well-versed in the law, um, of at least the law of Moses. He has the Pentateuch at that point, most likely. Um, and God ma- moved a king named Artaxerxes, which is after Xerxes, after Esther, to allow Ezra to return to Jerusalem from Babylon. What you note here is there's a second group of people who are coming back. When we think about the, uh, the return from exile, uh, I often think like, oh, it's this big wave of people and there's a lot of celebration. It actually takes a long time and kind of slow and kind of clunky. So there's this second wave of people, about 5,000 who go with Ezra. And he's even struggling to get Levites, priests to come with him. So he has to go do some recruiting to get people to do that. And he invites them to come with him back to Jerusalem. So they leave from Babylon on April 8th, the first day of the first month, the beginning of Nisan, and arrived on August 4th. This four-month journey was about 500 miles. Um, And to carry, now that sounds like 500 miles, four months, a little long. They're carrying a lot of stuff. Give them some credit here. And what's crazy is that all this stuff, um, there's there's this really human moment where Ezra, who actually starts to write in the first person, which is why we know Ezra wrote this book, um, says, we, we had to pray for protection because we told the king, we don't need anything. We'll be fine. Uh, Artaxerxes might have offered them protection as they carried gold and things like that across the land. He's like, we're just going to pray for protection. Um, and so they did. And they actually split the supplies amongst 12 groups of priests to remind themselves of the 12 tribes of Israel in this return back to the, pro- to the promised land. So Ezra's journey is described in chapter 8. Um, and then we go on. Um, from their gathering, to their traveling, to their coming, ready to establish the covenant. And so Ezra comes back. Now that the temple's established, temple worship is established, God moves to bring another man back, another leader back to lead his people. This time not just in temple worship, but actually lifestyle worship. And we're going to talk about that um, as we go into Act 4. 
if you're looking for like a really like beautiful like mirrored structure like Esther, this book's a little different because it is just an accounting of what happened in many ways. It's accounting first return, opposition, completion of the temple, second return. And then we get into very specific nitty-gritty details to things that are really complicated and hard. You see, Jeremiah and Isaiah and these prophets, they prophesied that God would be drawing the nations through his people. But the reality is his people are kind of a mess. And this is what Ezra steps into to lead. In chapters 9 and 10, we have a messy finish to the book of Ezra. The first thing that's brought to Ezra's attention as he's there, as, we, as recorded here, is intermarriage. Now this sounds like confusing. Maybe you're like, why would that be a problem? Like we're, we're comfortable with people marrying all sorts of people. Um, that's not a problem. Like it, was, it had nothing to do with race or culture. It had to do with allegiance or not allegiance to the God of, it, the God of God's people, to the God of Judah. And so intermarriage is brought up as a problem. And Ezra is distraught at this. He rips his garments, his hair, and he starts to fast. He is upset at this news. Because God's people, from the very beginning, were commanded to remain apart from the other nations. When they took the promised land the first time, they were told to not intermarry, to not have any business with the culture, because he was establishing his own people in his own nation. And so Ezra, knowing that, was grieved to hear that people in, Israel, in, in Jerusalem had chosen to marry non-Jews. I don't know how that makes you feel, but this is, this is God's word. This is, this is the reality of that moment. And so Ezra comes forth and he offers a prayer, a confession. And I just, I think this is so, I'm gonna read this to you guys. He says, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been great in guilt. Ezra knows that this is not the first time the people have been in, not in step with God. And for our iniquity, iniquities, we, our kings and our priests have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering and to utter shame as it is today. So he says, because of the sins of our father, because of our previous generation, we were put into exile. We are right in the stream of that again, unfortunately. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God. We've been given a chance to go back, to leave us as a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving of our, in our slavery. For we, we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, for, but he has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. He's summarizing what is happening. He said, God has given us this. He's acknowledging this is God's hand on Cyrus, on Artaxerxes, to send these people back. And now, oh, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by the servants, your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the land, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons. Right there. Don't intermarry. Neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace 
or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and live in it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Let me pause real quick. Ezra is pointing out, that's why we were exiled in the first place, is we intermingled. We said we are going to sacrifice what God has given us, this unique, special people, this covenant with the creator of the universe, and we're going to intermarry and sort of settle for like an earthly fine. That's why they were exiled in the first place. And he says, so we're going to do it again now? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Uh, I think about this, and I, I have so many thoughts about God's people, the church in today's age, where it feels like we've been given opportunities and then we squander them. I'm talking with JD, or if you guys have seen the movie Jesus Revolution, there's this amazing moment and then we become political. Like God's people have constantly been returning and wavering and Ezra highlights this reality and says, God, don't be too mad with us again. Don't remove us. You've given us this special opportunity to return and we're gonna screw it up. And so chapter 10, the last chapter of the book, Ezra's confession and repentance leads to a response from God's people. Um, what's, it's going to be a weird response because it's not like satisfying. First off, everybody's assembled and they're like, hey, we can't stay here too long because this matter is urgent. Also, it's the rainy season, so we can't stay here together too long. Like, that's weird. Like, this makes these texts so human, like acknowledging space and time and like, hey, there's a real rainy season and we can't be outside together right now assembled because it's raining all the time. Um, how human that they can't handle the earthly conditions, but they also can't handle the grief of the situation. But here's what they discover is they start to research and look into it. They say, actually, you know what the, the problem is? Actually, our leaders are also doing this. It's not just the people, but it's the leaders who are leading the way in this intermarriage, in this not remaining pure to God's plan. Many Jews have intermarried, some have kids, um, but here's the solution that's offered. And this is what feels really unsatisfying. Divorce the women that won't accept the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob. Divorce them, send them back to their families of origin. The big plan to fix it is divorce. How unsatisfying. But here's the challenge is, is there is this pitting of God's command to be pure, but also contemporary, contemporary um, prophets saying God hates divorce. There's this intermingling of frustration with the situation on both sides. Like there's no good solution here. You guys kind of screwed up in the first place. And you guys ever feel that where this doesn't feel like a great solution when sin comes about? It feels like there's one solution that's pretty good and another one that's pretty okay. How do we handle this? There's some mystery to it. There's some confusion in it. But they decide this is what's going to happen. And, the, and the, the people in Jerusalem decide to submit to it. And they gather a list and the process takes three months. 
from what we call December until March, uh, and ended up <clears throat> finally being on the first day of the Jewish calendar that next year. And they had a list. And I just want you to put this in perspective. This is where this stuff feels complicated, messy, and confusing. Is there's a call to divorce, to send families back to where they came from, to, to break up families and send women and their children back to where they came from. And it feels like, oh my gosh, this is a massive problem. But if you remember, there's this first group of exiles, about 42,000 plus 8,000 servants, and another exile, or group return of about 5,000. You have a couple generations. You're looking at 55 to 60,000 people, let's say. Let's just say 60,000 for the sake of roundness. Ezra lists 110 names. 110 names. And it says where they come from. From the priests, from the Levites, from the Israelites. 110 names. I don't know if that sounds like a lot or not a lot to you. If it sounds like a lot, that's fair. It's 110 people who have done this. It also feels like, man, we're throwing up a stink for this? This is what's confusing about when we live in the midst of sin is we, there's hard choices made. Um, about 110 names are listed to divorce their families. What would you do? How would you lead in that situation? Would you have said, hey, let's do the divorce thing? Let's do the try to like flirt to convert thing? Um, what would you have done? Impressionist said flirt to convert in that moment. That's a pretty serious moment. Anyway, the return to exiles, they ultimately submit to the decision. And that's how the book of Ezra ends, <laughs> just with that list. Thankfully, Nehemiah gets paired with it and we get to hear more, but it's just, it leaves me, this whole week it's left me like, that's it? That's it? God's people who were called to re- bring the nations together, that's what they could muster? A messy solution to an impossible situation? This is the tension that exists throughout Ezra. God uses Cyrus, a powerful leader, to free people from their exile and return them home. He uses the world to bring out his proudest purposes, but also the world opposes the people and keeps writing letters and says, hey, they need to stop, right, to stop building. Attention between those things. The Israelites return to worship. They build the altar first thing, but then they're like, hey, we can also do some intermarrying, and that would probably be fine, right? The solution for divorce, it helps the purity of the nation, but let me tell you, it leaves women and children away from the original, and returning to their original families, it feels uncomfortable to me. I don't know if it feels uncomfortable to you guys. It feels that way to me. The hope that we heard about in Isaiah, the suffering servant, this one who will come and restore people to their creator, it's not happening at this time. It doesn't happen in Ezra. And can you imagine feeling that tension as Ezra thinking, man, we are doing it. We are the people who are returning. They built the temple. We're coming back. We're going to do it. What happened? You guys did what? How are we supposed to solve this problem? This is the tension. It can be hard to know what to make of books like this that recount what happened, that recount history, that point us to unsatisfying solutions that show prayers to God and trying to listen to God without clear words from God. But we live, this is our history as God's people. This is our history. We live in this. Now, thankfully, we live on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ because we know where the solution is. 
We don't need to put hope in ourselves to be an excellent church, to put together a great service with perfect lights and sound and things like that. We don't need to have great signs. We don't need to have the perfect answers. We need to look to Jesus. And I want to I give you that as the starting point because I don't know what God has for you from this book. Uh, but I just want to offer you a few thoughts of things that, that come to mind for, for me. What, what do we do with Ezra? The first is acknowledge the history. I mentioned that this is our history as God's people. Acknowledge this is what happened. There's good record that says this is in the stream of other history. It can be corroborated like it's pointed to. This happened. It's messy. It's unsatisfying. But then I also know from this book there's a lot of different things. Can we just put these all up here? Things that you might be thinking or be able to get, get away from here, from this. God uses the secular to fulfill his will. God uses Cyrus to fulfill God's will. Is there something in your life where God is using your professor's your floor mates, to fulfill his will in your life? Are you willing to pay attention to that? People tend to return to their sin. Are there things that you just tend to want to return to that you need to repent of? This happens in Ezra. God uses hardship to cleanse his people. I know this has happened in churches across America as we need to recalibrate our expectations of who's in charge. Hey, get to know God's word. This is important. Ezra knew God's word, and so he grieved when it wasn't being fulfilled. It's another takeaway. Maybe you guys need to just get into God's word and get to know it better. Don't begrudge the fruit. This is what, the, what happened when the smaller Temple Mount was built. There were people who were upset about it, but there was still fruit. There was still something moving forward. And this is what's unsatisfying about Ezra, is it's not all lost. There's still, an, there's still people returning to Jerusalem. There's still worship being established, but it's just messy. But don't begrudge the fruit that there is. Things don't move as fast as we want them to sometimes. I wanted to show you those timelines of 80 years of Ezra to sort of end up at a mess solution. Your entire lifetime might feel meaningless in the grand scheme of things. But if we are faithful to following our God, it doesn't matter. Steadfastness is required. I just pointed out like, man, we guys got to follow God, follow God, follow God, stick with it. Household purity matters. Let me tell you, that matters still. I would encourage you, marry a follower of Jesus. Don't toy with anything else because it will affect your household. It will affect your family. It will affect you deeply. And I know that feels uncomfortable. In this room, I know it feels uncomfortable. I want to communicate. Look to marry someone who follows Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus with your life, don't mess around with it. That's some things I think it might have for us as a community. Can I tell you what's done, what this book has done for me this week? I've been reminded that the rebuilding is God's. It's for the Lord to do. And I've thought about this book actually a lot because like, it was really cool for churches to do Nehemiah and Ezra like after the pandemic and be like, we're rebuilding and like, it's going to be great. But like, the reality is the rebuilding is still pretty messy. It's for the Lord to do. And I would love for you guys to be sensitive enough to God to worship him and consider how God might use you in rebuilding God's kingdom on this campus, inviting people to follow him, inviting people to come and be a part of what God has for them. I would love for you guys to be a part of that, but I want you to know it's God's, not yours. I want you guys to remember Jesus, not a line in life. But for me, it's been re deeply um, helpful to read this book and just be reminded it's kind of messy and hard sometimes to rebuild. But if the Lord wants it, he's going to do it. He's going to bring it about even in the midst of the mess. The kingdom of God is not built on good programs or good plans. It's built on worship. 
and following God has for us. So I want to I want to invite you guys back to worship. Because we as a church, even I sat, I feel like last it was last year I saw crisis precedes renewal. Those of you who were with us last year, remember maybe you remember me talking about that. Maybe you don't. That would be a great thing if you don't remember what I was saying, because hopefully you remember what Jesus said to you. Um, but crisis precedes renewal. There's a really hardship in a in the exile, and then renewal comes about. But the renewal is messy. But the renewal begins, if, if you remember, and if you know it's okay, remember begins with them building an altar and making a sacrifice. Even when things aren't all set up, they started to worship. And worship is the beginning of that renewal, I'm convinced. And so I don't know where you guys are at with God. I know where some of you are at because we've talked, but I don't know where all of you are at. I want to invite you to reflect a little bit. I have some questions up here. And we, we try to practice a discipline each Sunday where we engage in what God has for us through song sometimes, through prayer. Um, I'm going to give you a chance actually through silent prayer today, a reflective prayer. And so I've got some prompts for you to invite, just to, to say to God um, up here, where have I drifted from you, Father? To consider where have you set out with the best intentions to follow God and you just sort of drifted? Would you invite God to show that to you? Holy Spirit, what are you using to draw me back? What are the things that you are using to draw me back to you, God, that I, where I've drifted? Maybe there are things in your life that you're just too busy to pay attention to that God wants to point out. And then, Jesus, restore and rebuild me as you want. If the rebuilding is for the Lord, I want us to follow that rebuilding, not the one that I think I have. And so what's going to happen is I'm going to pray here. I'm going to give you guys a chance to reflect a little bit. Our band is going to play some music in the background, and then we're all going to sing uh, some musical worship um, to our king. We are going to be unsatisfying. We are going to be a mess, but the Lord himself is not unsatisfying. And so when you look at your brother and sister who hurts you in the church, I don't know why I feel like I want to say this, don't give up. It is going to be unsatisfying. We are going to not satisfy one another. And that stinks. I'm going to hurt you probably if we're friends long enough. Um, but I pray that you would look to Jesus who will not disappoint. I'm thankful we have his example and his salvation before us. And in light of that, I want to pray and give you an opportunity to reflect and pray yourselves.